Um, so, I've been reading your biography and so on. There's so many things I wanted to ask you when I was reading it. There's lots of interesting things. Number one, um, I live across the road from where you started at Phoenix. So really? <laughs> Richmond, I was like, oh yeah, I know that place, but it's wow. quite different now. But um, yeah. So, you started really with great people, and, and that was your first, was that your apprenticeship at Phoenix? Phoenix or? Yeah, the bulk of it. I had my first employment was actually at um, the Veneto Club in Bulleen on okay. Bulleen Road, a three-storey concrete monster, um, and it was really there that I met a couple of amazing chefs who were um, from the Phoenix crew, okay. and they they'd taken just some roles to take a step back and do a lot of function work. Yeah functions up to 500 people two different levels a thousand people plus a bistro operating in the middle um, quite high volume I was there for 10 months and then uh, my very first head chef Aldo said uh, if you want to learn how to cook you've got to go to Phoenix you know, I've spoken to so many chefs who have spent time at Phoenix and then gone on to really great things it sounds like it was a really good uh, training ground. It was, yeah, an incredible. We had an incredible string of head chefs through there. I was really lucky to work with world class, mm. and they were uh, well known for importing talent as mm. well from mm. overseas. So worked with um, one of Marco Pierre White's proteges, okay, wow. um, Dan Hunter, who had just finished at the Royal uh, finished at um, Muguritz as head chef, came over. Stuart McVeigh, who was a local talent as well. Um, George Columbaris, Gary Megan, yeah. Raymond Capaldi. It was incredible. It does sound like it's sort of like the, the nobility, isn't it, of <laughs> Melbourne hospitality. And even even just the, the crew that went through there, where they are now, is incredible. Yeah, that's right. So what do you think it was about, well, obviously the talent, but um, how... You know, what, would it, what does it look like to, to learn? Because you're already in a place that was doing high volume and, and good food. So then what was the difference? Really, that restaurant was driven by Raymond Capeldi, who had a relentless pursuit for excellence and did not accept any substitute. And that's really what it was. Yeah. Not, not accepting anything other than exactly what was required mm. through all aspects of cooking mm. yeah really an intense three and a half years yeah it's a long time to spend in one place too isn't it so yeah. especially if it's hard and intense i don't know if anyone else worked there that long it, a lot of people had short lifespans there oh yeah it was a tumultuous environment how old were you when you were there uh in my early 20s yeah i started cooking quite late okay mm. yeah is it so did you think you might do something else and then you thought cooking's for me? How did you get into it? Actually, I left, I finished high school and I was destined to be an engineer. And so I was a math science kid. Um, got into Monash Uni doing engineering. Into my second year, I really had a desire to work with my hands and get my head out of the books. Yeah. And through that time of living by myself essentially looking after myself cooking during that time it was the rise of the TV chef I suppose okay shows like The Naked Chef Jamie Oliver 
little bits and pieces um, that I was really just doing to look after myself. Sure. But really grew an interest in it. It's interesting. So you obviously not just doing to- toast and baked beans on toast. Yeah. <laughs> you obviously, yeah, that's yeah. right. I had an interest, and it was an outlet for you. Yeah, I really loved it, and I, I found, I actually found. My life got better and better the more time I spent in the kitchen, and I, I really thrived on that discipline and the structure. Yeah. Um, it was great. Yeah. It was really great. It's amazing. And there's maybe some crossovers between math, science, engineering, and cooking. Do you think? Is there things you can do? Certainly, certainly, when you're dealing with pastry, and where it is the science spice. of cooking, yeah. um, which I love. Yeah. Um, but. In his creativity. The creativity isn't typically associated with (laughs) the math science world, but I guess I was fortunate enough to um, have an interest in that as well. And cooking certainly ticks the boxes for creativity. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, um, did you go to cooking school or did you go straight into the... Yeah, I I was studying at William Angus, finished my apprenticeship at Phoenix and then from Phoenix, I was pretty burnt out, to be honest, well, at yeah. the end. Yeah. Um, I took a little job, what I thought was going to be just a quiet little job in the city at a place called Journal Canteen. Um, which I remember going there. Which I met, was fortunate to work with Rosa Mitchell, um, which was part of the European group. And my job was to provide soups and cookies and muffins and things for the cafe journal downstairs in the morning and then once Rosa came in my job was to turn her home cooking into uh, an offer that we could sell in the canteen Wow! Um, and then she would work the floor after she'd done all the cooking and recipes and then I would um, be cooking that with, with an assistant as well and so the three of us were churning out I started there at lunches. It was lunch only. Doing 10 people for lunch. Yeah. By the time I left, 110, 120 people just churning. It was wild. You must feel pretty good about yourself to do that kind of... That must mean, you know, that then you knew that you were in the... Well, you already knew you were in the right job, but having that sort of step away from it, away from the busyness of Phoenix and yeah. you created this new thing. Yeah. All, all credit to Rosa. She's... It, it was her her um, brainchild and Con as well the owner is that more Italian food yeah Sicilian yeah Sicilian very very specific okay cooking with the seasons handmade pasta um even tarts and things like this was just amazing it was great and it was exactly what I needed I think to Mm. find my passion back yeah, because you would have done the classic, you did classic training, I guess, and Very then much. Um, and then it's about marrying that with their home style cooking. It's quite interesting. Yeah, and even Phoenix was so modern. Yeah. Um, really pushing boundaries to come back into home cooking, mm. everything made by hand. It was it was soul food, really. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing, incredible, and then from there, I guess my taste for Italian food continued. Um, moving on to Church Street Enoteca. Um that was great I, the general manager actually of Church Street was the old restaurant manager of Phoenix he poached me essentially nice. to come across they were putting together a team of chefs because they wanted to get a chef's hat 
the venue had never had a chef's hat. They were pushing really hard. They asked me to come in and write their dessert menu for them, as well as work the, the section um, as well. So a great challenge was set. Um, I also made the decision at that point, I'd only be there 12 months and then set off for the UK to further my, tra- my training. Yeah. We were really lucky that that year we got the chef's hat we were after. How do you know how to do that? That's Because you know, like, there's a, there's a stand, like, how do you know what to do to get a, a chef's hat? Is it just kind of like... Well, fingers or it's usually spending a, spending a shitload of money on amazing produce. Yeah, okay. And being really loud about it, telling people, you know, championing, champ, championing the produce and talking about it. Um, and I think if you genuinely are doing all the right things, people pay attention. Mm. If you're doing it consistently, it, it, it's what it takes. Mm. But the consist, it's easy to produce a menu that. Is worthy of a chef's hat, but to day in day out sure. is is the challenging part. Um, it was an amazing team they put together. Real credit to them, and to get the chef's hat and then have a ticket booked to the UK was just incredibly no. satisfying. Yeah, yeah. And so that would have been another whole learning curve in the UK, I guess. Yeah. How I, di- was it different? Was yeah, it? it's it's another world. It was like starting from scratch again. I'd already organised by the time I got there to go and do the winter season in the French Alps in Chamonix, cooking with ex-Phoenix alumni, three other guys. So there was four of us and I was also travelling with my now wife. Um, So we all worked together for the same company. We stayed there six months, all the way through the winter into the spring, cooking in the luxury chalets, which they... The company promotes that they only serve Michelin star quality food. So we were set a challenge to deliver something to corporate clients that really exceeded whatever else was being served in the valley. Wow. Um, but it was nice every once in a while we'd get a family in and they'd just want a lasagna on the table yeah. and, a, and a fresh salad. Yeah, nice. So it what was... What an amazing experience. How beautiful. Yeah, it was... Life-changing, actually. Really life-changing. Yeah. Snowboarding all day, cooking all night for six months. Living life like it's golden. That's awesome. It's, it's pretty crazy. How's your French? <laughs> <laughs> general, general chef words, kitchen French and all the naughty stuff as well. Yeah, that's about that's it. Right. Yeah, it's generally what people say. <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay. And so... So then did you come back here after after France or did you go back to the UK? I went back to the UK. Um, I tried really hard to get my foot in the door at some restaurants, um, one of which was the Vineyard in um, Newbury, Stockcross, um, which is west of London, out past Oxford and out that direction towards Ascot. And there was a two Michelin star restaurant in the hotel I went there and worked for free. Just said, I want to work here. Um, They provided accommodation. I just had to feed myself on my days off, but it was mainly at work anyway. Worked there until the executive chef resigned because they were trying to change the restaurant into a lower, more accessible offer. He then made the introduction 
uh, John Campbell was the executive chef for that restaurant, The Vineyard. He made an introduction to the square in Mayfair through the chef Philip Howard, um, which I was lucky enough to trial and get a chef to party position and worked my way through that kitchen up until the time I left London. I would have stayed there if I had the visa. Yeah, so you were, so you were away two years there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I thought, um, so then you came back and you, you took a sous chef position at the Royal Mail. Correct, yeah. I was kind of interested in that because I think that feels like I was taking a little bit of a step back from what you'd been used to doing. Yeah. Is that just to get back into the scene and to work something like that? Or? There was... The hierarchy in the kitchen was Dan Hunter, myself, and the newly qualified apprentice. And that was pretty oh, much right. it. Okay. <laughs> so you, had, you pretty much had to be the sushi. And we, yeah. we all just did everything together. Wow, I didn't realise that. Yeah, okay. It was tight. Start, it was... Yeah. I was there... I left just before they were awarded their third chef's hat. And so during that time, even when they had two chefs hat, there was no staff. Mm. We were doing shifts. We were doing the breakfast. There was no breakfast chef. So a shift... We never got out of the kitchen ever before 1am, and if we were on breakfast, it was a 6am start. That's amazing, isn't it? But really, really an amazing experience. The, it's incredible how quickly you can refine and progress in your field if you have no zero distractions mm. and you are doing you're spending every waking minute thinking about it. Yeah. So it was incredible. But 18 months, two years of that was yeah. more than enough. Mm. At, at that time, my now wife was living um, in Melbourne still. So I was there alone, traveling back to Melbourne every second weekend. And she would make the trip sometimes as well. Spent the entirety of our engagement separated through this, this period yeah. just to pursue that, that um those skills that I really wanted to achieve and then I only came back to Melbourne to get married and we settled down after yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. And so what do you think it is because that's a lot of that's a real commitment to your career and so on and obviously it's a great testament to your relationship and that's um that I like hearing stories like that but what do you think what is it for you that keeps you going through all the like the almost burnout, all those long, long hard hours, yeah. and the, and then that real challenge to you know romance <laughs> and a life. What what is it for you that keeps you in the or kept you going through that time? I think it's for me. It's been a genuine love for the industry as a whole, and not just cooking. I enjoy going to restaurants. I enjoy looking at the design of restaurants. I like reading different people's menus, everything about it. And I guess setting myself a goal to achieve a certain skill set that I would be happy with was a really big thing as well. Setting a target of working in a two Michelin star restaurant or a two hat restaurant. I really thought that that was, it wasn't going to be forever but push while I was still learning and as long as I felt my body would stand up to it I kept going yeah. it's, it's challenging 100% so what's 
Absolutely. Sometimes like teachers are like, oh, you know, it's so hard with all these kids in front of us. But I reckon chefing is just, I think that's the hardest. Honestly. There's, yeah, there's, it's, it's really, it's a different story now. There's, there's venues that still work like that. And then there's venues like we're at now at Fato mm. that, that really champion work-life balance. Good. Yeah. But through that period, you don't, if you're, if you're in a remote area and you're cooking with a team of guys that you love and you all want to do it together mm. and produce something you're really proud of, you just don't really count the hours. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I've spoken to a few chefs and, you know, of course you've got to be careful what you say and so on. And I think, you know, no one needs to be exploited. But as you say, when you're learning or if you are really passionate about it, I reckon anything that you love doing or you're learning to be a better painter or a better flute player or whatever it is, yeah. you, you put the hours in because you want to. Then it's tricky about, it's tricky maybe about payment. But, but yeah. then, you know, so that's where I think it's hard here. But I, yeah, yeah. I totally value what you say, especially if it's remote and you, that's, that's what your life is. Yeah, and I think with most things in life you get out what you put in and so I guess it was putting myself in a position where all that mattered was the training and trying to raise the level that I was working at for an investment in myself mm. at all costs yeah yeah wow and so now Fatou you've got you've got a life work-life balance as well but it sounds yeah. like you've got two really important jobs venue manager and head chef yeah yeah it's a tricky one how does that work <laughs> um is that just like being a control freak? <laughs> Actually, the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. It's it's an absolute. All it is is an absolute credit to the team around me. Yeah. And they they are the ones that make that happen. Mm. Couldn't do it without them. Mm. Every single one in our management team here um, have a role to play, and I rely heavily on them. Their opinions. Yeah. Um, their their work that they do, the contributing to the business and making sure that they have their work-life balance worked out so that when they hit the door, when they start shift, they're in a great mood, they're productive. All of these things add up. Um, so the front of house and kitchen staff report to you, is it? 100%. Yeah, nice. Yeah. It's good. And I don't think we could have made that happen either unless the genuine love of the industry as a whole really came into it. I I contribute to playlists of music. The, I do the writing on the walls. I do talk about garnish, cocktail garnishes with the guys. Talk about table layouts. Talk about. Um, Are you still on the pans. Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah, wow. I'm cooking, cooking the meat, and the fish, and doing the pasta tonight. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's a lot. It's a big workload, hundred percent. But again, I absolutely love it. Yeah. I love the venue. I want to see this venue do really well. Um, How long so have you been here? Longer than it's been here. <laughs> so I'm in my seventh year. Okay. Before this, um, same company had a different venue. I started as a sous chef here and then moved my way up into head chef, into head chef venue manager. Nice. Yeah. So you do obviously really believe in it. It must be a place that yeah. feels good to you. It's beautiful being like, well, look at that. I don't get sick of coming to work. No. That's for sure. Amazing. <laughs> now, just talk me through um, minimal intervention but bold flavours. Sound, they sound like, how do you get bold flavours with minimal intervention? Well, yeah, not, a, not everyone understands that they can be mutually exclusive. Um, it's... I think it's really 
Italian food's really easy, in my mind. The produce is incredible, and the less you do to it, the better it is. It's like, I remember one of my old chefs, when I was at Phoenix, he used to say to us young guys, he'd test us and talk about, okay, what would you do with this dish? How, this, this vegetable's in season, what should we do with it? And he got us one day completely and he said, okay, here's this beautiful mango that's just come in. What should we do with it? We're like, oh, you know, we could marinate it with some lime and some, um, you know, kaffir lime or do a little sorbet or something. He's like, you're all wrong. As least as possible. It's absolutely perfect. Dice it up and serve it. Like, that's it. That's all you need to do. Something to accompany it, absolutely, but... Why mess with it? It's yeah. perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And that's, for Italian food, I feel the real ethos here. We buy the best quality mozzarella. You don't need to do anything other than an olive oil, salt and pepper. Mm. And it's perfect. So it's Italian mozzarella? Or Made locally. locally. Oh, nice. Yeah, 100%. Wow, yeah. I think it's... To serve Italian-made products would be a dream but when you look at what it takes to bring that product to Australia it's not doing the product any justice most of the time with the mozzarella they're freezing them and they're bringing it over you're losing the structure in the cheese by the time it's defrosted and it's just not on the producers that we have particularly in Victoria world class world class I get a I get a lot of flack for using Victorian olive oil in Mount Zero but when there's so many Italian olive oils on offer, but if anyone knows anything about olive oil, it's that you should be using that season's olive oil and it should be done by the end of the season, ready for the next one. The heat affects it, the light affects it, all of these things. So to put that through transit, you're having an inferior product straight away. Yeah. Well, it's more in keeping with the ethos of Italian cooking, isn't it? To be using local, seasonal, whatever. I mean, yeah. that is what they do. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a genuine, a genuine respect of the produce is so, so important. Mm. And I guess it's taking... It's not trying to be all things Italian at Fata. It's about those ethos mm. and, and trying to do it our way using my background mm. through really respecting that produce and, yeah, picking that ethos up from Italy and dropping it in South Bank, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> It's a bit cheeky. So when people come, um, diners come, what's what what's the best experience you want for them? How would it how would it run? We're really lucky for this venue. It's broken down into bar and cantina. Cantina being our restaurant. Um, I come here as a patron. I love the venue. <laughs> so when I'm here, I'm either in the bar yep. with my family, having pizzas and snacks and things, on the way to the footy, or or we're sitting in the cantina having a feasting menu of um, four different courses, shared starters, pasta to share, a main course to share, and maybe a dessert to finish, a bottle of wine, and it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Some people do both. Uh, <laughs> start in the bar and work their way into the restaurant. But being part of the art centre, obviously the pre-theatre crowd is a huge part of what we do, and we don't. We don't ignore that and we, we try to make sure that we satisfy what that means to go to the theatre. And so everything we do is geared for speed and ease of service. 
which is great because the Italian food, you don't need to do too much with it. Sure. Slice the prosciutto, put the grassini on the oil, the pepper, and away you go. Mm. Um, so it makes it easier. But we do a lot of events here as well. An ideal scenario is in December that we're booked out for venue exclusives, weddings, parties, things like this. Dining room turns into a dance floor, long tables all the way down the terrace. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah, it's really so nice. Lovely. Yeah. And are you making, do you make current pasta? We do. Yeah. Where possible. Yeah. Um, we don't have an extruder, so, so we don't make any extruded pastas. But the guys are turning out all the classics. Gnocchi, we go through so much. Um, all the flat pastas through the machine. Um, yeah, even the gnocchetti sardo, which is an ind- another machine altogether. We've got a really cool thing called a kitara, which is like a guitar. Oh, yeah. Put a sheet down and you roll it through the strings and produces very, very fine pasta, which sort of mimics an extruded spaghetti like that or a linguine, which is good. Yeah. The, the tagline of the restaurant is Italian by hand, so it would be, it would be uh, criminal for us to try and blag it so it's yeah it's, we do as much as possible all the way the guys making the pizza the dough's made fresh in-house 48 hour ferment and then stretched by hand to water it's as much as possible yeah now just um to close with uh, not i don't want to talk about any individual places but i've just noticed like in the news lately a lot of kind of big boom places that opened and are closing, what do you think the, um, the secret to success is for a restaurant in Melbourne? It's a tough one. Yeah. If I, if I had the answer, I'd probably have my own venue, but <laughs> um, I think Melbourne, Melbourne is a really unique place in the hospitality world where the quality is far higher than we think it is, and it's world class. We have cafes serving restaurant quality food, and we're all buying five dollar coffees and from these places. At the same time, it's in strip back interiors with just polished concrete floors and um, bare timber tables and things like this. So it's a really unique environment. I think for me, a successful venue starts with an offer that's really honest and that you believe in it and you have to believe in it and love it to put it out to market. But just because someone has a dream of opening their own, oh, I've always wanted to open an Italian restaurant and serve handmade pasta, the reality of what that means is often far from where they think it is. The ability to consistently turn out that product which is of a high quality which is of a high quality produce it obviously comes with a price point as well so a combination of a product that you believe in a quality product and an affordable price point really is where I think the market is sitting we're seeing a rise in venues that are offering substantial discounted offers because that's where the the economy is sitting we're spending less but more often 
A lot of people go out for lunch three, four days a week. No problem. But they're looking for a bargain the whole time. So I think it, as, as time goes on, while the markets are quite volatile, we're going to continue to see people looking for offers that are suit their budget and they're trying to be quite frugal. Um, so I think the, the future is really there. You couldn't just open a venue and put on truffles and foie gras and champagne and but and believe in it 100% and then charge a fort like that, that. That's the pointy end of the market. I think you've got to sit somewhere where the owner and the operator are working harmoniously to put an offer out that they believe in and it's well priced. Yeah. Avoid the trends. Yeah. Avoid the trends. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>